And I, I think if Tom is here, he'll tell you that uh, I went up to him after we played it at uh, Christian Heritage the last time and just wanted to make sure he told me he was in the right class. Um, I wish he were graduating, um, along with a few other kids that I see that you have. And uh, I, Yeah, Humphreys. <laughs> we got a... We, everybody's got their own fan club here, I see. Right. All right. <laughs> Why don't we just have a pep rally? We might as well just... Uh... Well, I guess this is probably the understatement of the year. Um, we have developed quite a rivalry between our schools. And... Uh, it's wholesome and good, and we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to be involved. And uh, we thank God for the people that we've met here. I've had an opportunity to meet your coach, and I know that not only do I respect him, but uh, all of us at Christian Heritage respect him and uh, what he's doing and what has been going on on this campus, uh, especially in recent years with the resurgence uh, under uh, Dr. MacArthur's leadership. Uh, in 1974, between 74 and 79, the dean of students on this campus was a man by the name of Ken Nichols, and uh, he now works for us. And I just thought you would be interested to know that uh, old deans of students do survive, and uh, he came along with me today. Ken, just stand up so everybody can see how old you look. Right. <laughs> and Jim Rickard is an old friend. Uh, we've known him for a long time. In fact, he's... Uh, he sent me a copy of his most recent book last week. In fact, I'm a little tired today because I stayed up all night last night trying to finish it. I color very slowly. Um, <laughs> some of you, some of you who have come down to the games know that uh, our little college is located in El Cajon. And uh, you've probably seen it, E-L-C-A-J-O-N. Well, I'm not a native Californian. I've only been in California 10 years. And when I first moved here uh, 10 years ago, I was not accustomed to the Spanish influence of all of these names. And uh, I remember when I first saw the name of that city, I thought it was Elka John. And I uh, thought that was a strange name for a town. And uh, when I got to California, I had only been there a couple of weeks, and I was looking for a street the street is spelled J-A-M-A-C-H-A, and everybody knows that should be Jamacha. And I pulled into a gas station to ask this fellow where Jamacha Street was, and he looked at me like I had just come uh, from uh, a UFO or something, and uh, he said, are you from South Carolina? I said, no, I don't know why this day he asked me that. But, uh... And then he told me this little thing about my town where I live. He said there was a man that had come through his station a few weeks before, and he asked the fellow, uh, was asking for some directions, and, and the station attendant asked him uh, where he had been. He said he had been in La Jolla. And uh, the guy said, no, no, no. He said, it's not La Jolla, it's La Jolla, La Jolla. Oh, he said, I got it. He said, where are you going? What, what are you trying to find? He said, well, I'm looking for El Cajon. He said, no, it's not El Cajon, it's El Cajon. Oh, oh, he said, I, I guess I understand. And then the attendant asked him, he said, how long do you plan to be in these parts? He thought for a minute, he said, well, I'll be going back in Hoon or Hulai. So, you know, he, he kind of overlearned. You have to understand uh, from my perspective as a preacher that it is an awesome thing for me to come and preach here where uh, you're so accustomed to 
hearing the very best in Bible exposition, but I count it a privilege, and it is really an honor for me to come. I don't know who is ultimately responsible for the invitation, but um, I am grateful, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to open the Word of God with you today. And uh, I hope you brought your Bibles and will turn with me to the book of Revelation in the second chapter, Revelation chapter 2. We'll kind of read as we go along, but uh, let's just pray together, shall we? And ask the Lord's blessing on our time. God in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for the privilege of education. Thank you for Christian colleges like Masters, Christian Heritage, and many others like us across this country. Thank you for godly professors and administrators, for Christian young people who who really are committed to Jesus Christ and want to make a difference with their life. Thank you for these few moments that we have together. And Lord, we know we won't get to spend these again on planet Earth, and we pray that you will help us to spend them wisely. Give us attentive hearts, open minds, uh, ability to comprehend. I pray that you would speak, uh, Lord, through my mouth, the words that you would have us to understand. Fill us with thy spirit that we might be useful channels in, in your hands. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From my personal point of view, they had the perfect marriage. He was at the zenith of his career as the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers. She was his beauty queen wife. He was a gifted humorist and public speaker. She was a talented vocalist and violinist. They had a beautiful family, a lovely home, and from all outward appearances, a happy marriage. So you can understand my surprise when I opened my mail several years ago and found in my mail a publisher's copy of a book called Rekindled that told the real story of the relationship between Pat and Jill Williams, who had become close friends of ours. The story was not the story of a happy marriage, but it was the story of a slowly deteriorating relationship that hit rock bottom one December 19th on a Sunday afternoon when Jill Williams walked into the living room where Pat was reading the sports page and she said, I hate our marriage and I have come to the end. I will cook your meals, I will clothe your children, but don't expect anything else from me because I have nothing left to give. Pat said in the book that he was stunned when she said those words, but they had had moments of conflict before and he felt these would work themselves out in due time. But unfortunately, the days began to melt into weeks and the weeks melted into months and it became very evident to Pat that when his wife had told him that she had died emotionally, she had told him the truth. The book Rekindled is the story of Pat's great love for his wife, Jill, and his year-long attempt to win back her love for him. I have recommended it often for couples who have gone through difficulty in their relationships. The passage that is before us in the second chapter of the book of Revelation is a letter very, very much like the book Rekindled. It is the record of a broken relationship. In a parallel and symbolic manner, it is the story of a bride that has fallen out of love 
with the bridegroom. The letter is from the bridegroom to the bride. It is filled with entreaty and instruction, and it is intended to rekindle love. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. No doubt you have studied the book of Revelation, and you know that the second chapter begins the second major section in the book. The outline of the book of Revelation is wrapped up in the 19th verse of the first chapter, and it tells us there are basically three sections to this wonderful apocalypse. There is, first of all, the things which thou hast seen, which is chapter 1, and the things which are which is chapters 2 and 3, and the things which shall be hereafter, which is chapter 4 and following. When we begin to read in the second chapter, we're reading about the things which are. These are churches about which our Lord is communicating to John while he is in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And the Lord Jesus is speaking to John and asking him to write letters to these existing churches, letters of commendation and condemnation telling them what is right with them and what is wrong with them. And the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation are very important, not only for prophetic understanding, but for our own personal present-day application. They tell us much about ourselves and about our churches. There are at least three ways that we should always study chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. First of all, we must always understand these chapters by way of their primary association. By that I mean... Sometimes we get so caught up in the application and prophetic understanding that we forget these were seven actual letters written by John while he was in exile to seven literal churches that were in existence in a circle around the Isle of Patmos. It's interesting how easy it is for us to move away from the historic understanding of the Word of God because we move so quickly to apply its truth to today. I've often been intrigued with the fact that uh, with at least two exceptions, the seven letters that were written by John to these existing churches were all written about problems. In fact, uh, it's interesting that Paul the Apostle also wrote seven letters, and most of the letters he wrote were about problems. And so if you take 14 of the letters written to the early church, the majority of which are written about problems, and then you look at your own church, sometimes it helps you to feel better because you recognize this didn't start with us. There have been problems in the church from day one, and the apostles wrote letters to try to straighten them out. When we read the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, we need to understand its truth by way of its own primary association. Then there are many who study the book of Revelation who tell us that these churches also teach us something about prophetic anticipation. By that I mean that each church represents an epoch in the history of the church at large. 
Ephesus beginning with the post-apostolic church in the early days and the church of Laodicea representing the last church on earth before Jesus comes back. We could talk much about these first two things, but I want us to zero in on the third way we should read these letters, not only by way of their primary association and their prophetic understanding, but thirdly, we need to read these letters in, in light of their personal application to us. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we forget that the Bible was written not only to tell us what happened back then, but for us to understand what happened back then so that we might apply the timeless truths to how we live right now. And the book of Revelation, especially chapters 2 and 3, are rich in personal application for you and for me. Here in this second chapter, in the story of the first church, is the record of a group of people who had many things right, but who had lost one important ingredient in the life of their congregation. When uh, John wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus, recorded here in Revelation 2, the city of Ephesus was the most prominent city in the Roman province of Asia Minor. In fact, history refers to Ephesus as the Vanity Fair of Asia. It was the great city of its day. It was the religious and commercial center of the then-known world. Uh, the Greek temple which was constructed there was the Temple of Diana. It measured 425 feet long. It literally filled one and a half city blocks as we understand it today. It had 130 hand-carved columns that stood 60 feet high. There were 37 of these columns that were studded with jewels and with gold. The theater that was within the structure was capable of accommodating 24,000 people at one sitting. In the temple sanctuary was the lewd statue of Diana, the goddess of fertility. And the commerce of the city of Ephesus was built around the sale and commerce of small statuettes of Diana, the goddess of fertility. In the city of Ephesus, paganism was strong, seasoned, and respectable. Ephesus was the hotbed of every false religious cult that was known in the world in that day. But Ephesus was also the home of a little church. Paul had visited Ephesus during his missionary journeys. If you've read the book of Acts, especially the 18th chapter, you know that Priscilla and Aquila had their ministry there. Apollos preached there. The great apostle Paul returned to Ephesus on his third missionary journey and spent three whole years in that city because it was so fruitful. The Bible tells us that the result of his ministry in Ephesus was that everyone who were in Asia, everyone who was in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. 1 Corinthians 19. One of the most moving scenes in the entire New Testament is found in Acts chapter 20 when Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders that he had come to love so much during his time with them. But now, as we open our Bibles to Revelation 2, over 30 years have passed since Paul visited Ephesus and the church was founded and it went through its most wonderful and exciting days. And something has happened. A whole new generation has come to the front. And John, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, now writes a sad letter in some ways to this once vibrant church. And he tells them what's right about them, but then he zeroes in to tell them what is wrong. Now, if we were to examine the church of Ephesus in today's world, our analysis would probably be that it, was, that it was a candidate for the top award. I mean, it would be church of the year in most cultures that I know about. In America, there would be no church to equal it. 
Just look down at your Bibles and notice how it is described. First of all, John describes the church as a dynamic church. He says, I know thy works. Now that little phrase begins all of the letters to the churches of Asia Minor, but in this particular sense, it has significant meaning. This was a dynamic working church. I've already told you about the outreach they had back in the book of Acts as it's recorded for us in history. But the church of Ephesus was a dynamic church. If you moved into Ephesus as a believer and you said, show me the church where it's really happening, there would only be one place they would ever point. It was the dynamic church of Ephesus. I know a little bit about the Grace community and some of the other churches that dot the the western coast, and I know that God has given to us in California some wonderful dynamic churches, and we should be grateful for that. By the way, young people, do you know that dynamic churches get more people converted to Jesus Christ by accident than most people in other churches do on purpose? I remember a story that uh, Dr. Falwell told me once when I was with him in a conference. This actually happened back in the days of the bus ministry. Some of you remember when buses were circulating all over the world, bringing young people from everywhere to Sunday schools. And at the uh, Thomas Road Baptist Church during those days, they were busing in many young people, many children, to their church services. And they began to develop a problem at Thomas Road. And the problem was that they would bring these kids into Sunday school, and then after Sunday school was over, they would split. They would go downtown Lynchburg and kind of mess around until church was over. Then they'd come back and get on the bus like they'd been in church. And they had a free ride into Lynchburg and could have all the fun they wanted. And so the deacons at Thomas Road got together, and they made a decision. They were going to stop all this nonsense, and they got their deacons, the biggest and burliest of their deacons, and stationed them around the perimeter of the campus. And their, and their instructions were, when you see a kid walking away from the campus, grab him by the scruff of the neck and take him into the church service and march him down in the adult service to the front row and put him in the front row. Punishment was, you have to go to the adult church. What a terrible way to punish young people. But that's what happened. And on this given day, there were two boys who were marched in, sat down in the front row in the adult service. Dr. Falwell preached, and according to the story, when he gave the invitation, these two boys came forward and gave their hearts to Christ. Now, if you know anything about the southern uh, wing of the Baptist churches, you know that once they get them saved, they don't let them get in any trouble before they get them baptized. So they baptize them right then, right after the service. And these two boys stayed, and, and they were baptized. And, of course, after the baptismal service, the deacons who were presiding over them said, Now, boys, uh, we've delayed so long. I'm sure your buses have already left. We'll have to get someone to take you home. And the boys said, Buses? What do you mean? We were walking by this church today, and some guy grabbed us by the scruff of the neck and brought us in and sat us in the front row. The Word of God does say that we're to go out and compel them to come in. I understand that. But dynamic churches just accidentally get people saved. And that's the way it was at Ephesus. It was a dynamic church. But look down in your Bibles and notice, secondly, it was also a dedicated church. Right after the word works is another term for their intensity. I know thy works and thy labor. The word labor speaks not just of ordinary activity, but as one scholar has written about the word It drips with weariness. It is a word which means intensity beyond the call of duty. It means absolute, total commitment without any reservation at all. The people who were a part of the church at Ephesus were what you would look to as an example of the most deeply committed outward Christian you would ever want to see. I really don't know how to illustrate that in our culture today because that's kind of the lost chord of Christianity. Maybe I could help you understand it from a story that I recently read 
about a football coach that I greatly admire. His name is Joe Gibbs, and if you're not into athletics too much, you probably don't remember that at one time he was the assistant coach of the San Diego Chargers. He now is the coach of the Washington Redskins and has been, uh, at least until the last couple of years, eminently successful. There was a feature article about him in our paper in San Diego not long ago, and the article talked about his lifestyle and his commitment to what he believed his mission in life was all about. And uh, it, it talked about how he takes a single-minded approach to his job. The article went on to describe his commitment to his job in burnout terms, and I quote, Welcome to the not-so-wonderful world of Joe Gibbs, where for six months a year nothing exists in a meaningful way except football and the Washington Redskins and winning. Possibly no one involves himself in absolute total commitment to this exhausting process as does Gibbs. He has tried to do otherwise, but it has not worked. So for seven long days a week, six months a year, Gibbs gives himself as fully as a man can to one thing, football. It is his master. End of quote. And I underlined, it is his master. And I went on to read in the article how he has a cot in his office and he sleeps in his office during the week and he doesn't even go home. And during the six months of football season, he sees his wife and family for a few moments after each game and then he goes back to the routine that has made him such a successful coach. Now, personally, I question that kind of commitment to that kind of a goal. As much as I'm into athletics, I don't think that's worth it. But I do admire this about Joe Gibbs. He is committed to a master. And young people... When I look around in the Christian church today, I see more people looking for their benefit package than where they can plug in their commitment cord. And if there's ever a time when we need people who are sold out without reservation to Jesus Christ, who really don't care about the cost or where it is that God sends them, it's now. And as I understand the church at Ephesus, it was filled with people like that. They were not only dynamic Christians, they were dedicated. But keep reading in your Bibles and notice, not only were they dynamic and dedicated, they were determined. Notice verse 3. And thou hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. These were people who would not give up. No matter how tough things were, they kept going. It's the kind of patience that endures and at the same time retains a forward drive to it. These people were forward-minded and they were committed and they were determined. Some years ago I was reading one of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's sermons and he had a little quote in there where he was talking about this problem of determination and sticking to it. And he, and he wrote this little, I guess you would call it an advertisement. And this is what he said. He said, pray to God to send us a few men with what the Americans call grit. Men who, when they know a thing to be right, will not turn away or turn aside or stop. Men who will persevere all the more because there are difficulties to meet or foes to encounter who stand all the more true to their master because they are opposed, who the more they are thrust into the fire, the hotter they become, who just like the bow, the further the string is drawn, the more powerfully it sends forth its arrows. Pray to God to send us a few men with what the Americans call grit. And I submit to you that the people in Ephesus were like that. They were dynamic, they were determined, they were dedicated, but the list isn't finished. Keep reading. It was a disciplined church. Notice, it says in verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and how thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. While it is true that the church in Ephesus was patient, it was not patient with evil. 
And when people would come to them passing themselves off as apostles, as was the common currents, they would check them out and they would try their spirit. And later on it talks about how they dealt with the Nicolaitans, which was a sect in that day. And the scripture says they wouldn't have any traffic with false doctrine or with evil. They were disciplined. And by the way, that's another lost chord in our modern culture. Churches like our church, churches like Grace Community Church and others that I know about that practice church discipline are in the very, very great minority these days. We don't deal with evil in the church. We just allow it. But here was a church that when evil permeated the boundaries of their church, they expelled it. They disciplined it. They wouldn't let it have a part in what was going on. And then finally, it was a discerning church. It says in verses 2 and 6 that they tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. But this thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We could go on to describe this heresy that was so prevalent in the time it is not easily understood even reading the history books, but it was licentious to say the least. It was a heresy or a sect that allowed people to live lives that were not holy and righteous. If I could compare it to anything, I would, uh, I would put it in the same category as the sweeping New Age movement that is taking our country by storm today. They had a dualism about them that said good and evil were the same. And they would not uh, deal with anything that was wrong because they did not think anything was wrong. So they lived terrible, immoral lives. And some of that influence was trying to get into the church. And the scripture says that the people in Ephesus were discerning about it and they wouldn't let it in the door. Now, I've given you a quick survey of the wonderful things about this church. And indeed, these are impressive. Any of us who are pastors, if we got a resume of a church and the resume said, you are invited to come and pastor this church, let me tell you about it. It is dedicated and dynamic. It's discerning and disciplined. It's got all of these qualities. Most of us, if we were looking for a job, would step to the front of the line. But I want you to notice that the letter isn't over at the end of, at the end of verse 3. As you begin verse 4, there's a very, very strong term that changes the whole direction and emotion of the passage. Jesus is portrayed back in the first chapter of Revelation is pictured as having eyes like fire. If you ever read the description of Jesus in Revelation 1, it'll just bring you to worship. And I often think about that when I read this letter because it seems to me that our Lord looked past all of the facade of the church and obviously He saw their dedication. He saw their dynamism. He saw their discipline, determination, all the rest. But the Scripture portrays Jesus with His eyes, eyes of fire penetrating the facade of that church and looking right down into the core of who they were. And when He did, the Scripture says He saw that they had heart trouble. They had a major problem. Nevertheless, He said, I have something against you because you've lost or you have left your first love. Now, I've heard numbers of messages on this passage, and I've often heard different ideas about what it means to lose your first love. I think we should take the Bible in its simplest way, unless there's reason to take it otherwise, and it simply means they had lost their first love, their love for God that they had at the beginning. Weymouth translates the verse, Yet I have this against you, that you no longer love me as you did at first. What is first love? Well, we can all think about it for just a moment. It won't be hard for us to remember. First love is the devotion to Jesus Christ that so often characterizes the new believer. It is fervent. It is personal. It is uninhibited. It is excited. It is open. It is displayed. It is what some have called honeymoon love. Do you remember when you first came to Christ how excited you were about the Lord? 
I love being around new believers. In fact, we try to cultivate them as much as we can where we are. As soon as you get next to somebody who's a Christian for just a few days, they are so excited about Jesus Christ and they don't care who knows it. Young teenagers who come to Christ until somebody tells them they're not supposed to do it, carry their Bibles with them to school. They don't hide them under their social studies book. They carry them right on top. People who have come to know Jesus Christ and are red hot, hot in their love for Him don't care who knows about it. They're just so excited about Jesus Christ. And what Jesus said through John to the church at Ephesus is, you've got all these outward things that are right about you, but the problem is you've got heart trouble. You've gotten cold in your love for the Lord. Lord Byron once wrote these words. He said, I now have ashes where once I had fire. The soul in my body is dead. The thing I once loved I now feebly admire. My heart is as gray as my head. And I've underscored in my notes the one phrase, the thing I once loved I now feebly admire. Isn't it easy, young people, for us to allow that transition to take place in our lives and be like the Ephesians doing all the outward things that everybody admires. And sometimes when we're in a Christian college, we don't even have any choice about doing the outward things. They're mandated of us. And yet, you know something? God really doesn't care so much about the outward facade. With the same fire eyes of x-ray that He used to look into the heart of the church at Ephesus, He looks into our hearts, and He knows if we have lost our first love. I confess to you as a minister of the Gospel who's about the things of the Lord every day of the week, that it's very easy for me to let my heart grow cold toward the things of God if I don't continually watch over it with vigilance. It's so easy to let weeks and days go by without spending time with the Lord, and all of a sudden you wake up to realize that the one thing you totally loved, you now just sort of feebly admire. The church at Ephesus had lost their first love. Now, some of you may say, well, Pastor Jeremiah, you've told us there were five good things about him and only one bad thing, so maybe that isn't so awful after all. But read down in the text and see what the Lord Jesus said through John to this church. He said, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Now watch this. Here's the or else. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. Now that may not seem like a very serious warning when you read it right out of the King James Version of the Scriptures, but let me tell you what that means. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, I don't care how dynamic you are, how determined you are, how disciplined you are, how discerning you are, if you don't fix your heart problem, I'm going to snuff out your candle. What He meant by that, He was going to take out their influence. He was going to shut them down from having any influence in the world. And the fact of the matter is, the church at Ephesus didn't heed the warning. And the fact of the matter is that they did lose their influence. And this past summer, while I was in Europe, I went to Turkey and I saw Ephesus. And not only did the church die, but the city died. And there is no testimony for Jesus Christ there now. In fact, the people of the world who are the hardest to reach for the Lord Jesus Christ inhabit the territory where Ephesus once was where this place was once a burgeoning hotbed of outreach and evangelism, there is now a pile of ruins and the Muslim faith has taken control of the whole regions and they are almost impenetrable with the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from the miracle of God's grace. What Jesus said to the church of Ephesus is, it doesn't matter if you have all the outward things in place, if your love isn't right toward God, before you know it, your influence will die and you will mean nothing to the world around you. You will be neither salt nor light. 
Now, this is a rather strong and uh, convicting indictment of this church, but I'm glad that there's hope here for all of us. There's a way out of this. There's a way home from this. And I'd like to give it to you in three simple words that are right in the text. And if you want to know how to get your love back, if you want to know how to get back to the place where you as a Christian have the same fervency for Christ that you once had, here are three simple things you can do. They're right here in the text. First of all, remember. It says here, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. I want you to look up for just a moment. I want you to take a moment and see if you can remember in some vivid detail the moment of your conversion. Where were you saved? Where did you come to know Christ? Some of you came to know Jesus Christ in camps and in conferences where God, through a dynamic speaker or a solid influence from a counselor, got a hold of your heart. So changed and transformed you can hardly believe what God has done in your life. Some of you came up in Christian homes, but there was a moment when you embraced Jesus Christ in your faith and you became a believer. Some of you have become Christians perhaps since you came to this campus, but I can tell you because I've never met anyone who would say otherwise that the moment Jesus Christ takes the sin burden off of your heart and gives you peace and eternal life is the greatest moment of your life, and there's nothing that even comes close to it. Do you remember that? Do you remember what a joy it was just to wake up in the morning knowing that the burden of your sin was away? I'm going to tell you something that happened to me last night. We have just uh, begun our fall, our, our spring emphasis of evangelism and for the first time in many years, I have come back into the heart of that to teach the course and be involved in leadership of it. When we were in the Midwest for 12 years, that was the thing that God used more than anything else to build that church. We saw so many people come to Christ. Last night as we gathered and we had our dinner and then we all went out into homes to visit, I had a couple of uh, parishioners with me, a young lady who's only been a Christian about a year, and then a guy who, uh, who's been in the church for many years. And as we were driving to this house where we were going, I asked either one of them if they'd ever been a part of leading anyone to Jesus Christ. And they both said, kind of ashamedly, no. I said, have you ever been present when anyone has trusted Christ? And they said, no. I said, well, let's just pray that God will give us that chance tonight. And we went to this home. We found out after we got there it was the home of a single parent, a, a woman who had two children. We knocked at the door, and the door cracked open a little bit, and we looked in, and uh, there was no furniture in the living room. She had two little kids in diapers crawling around on the floor. There was junk all over the floor. There was one chair, one little broken-down chair and, and a television on the floor. And this single mother was sitting on the chair watching the television, and there was a teenage neighbor boy in the room. I thought to myself, Lord, it isn't going to happen here. Not here tonight. No way. But she saw who we were, and she invited us in, and we went in. And I went out in the kitchen and grabbed some chairs, and we set our little living room up, and we began to talk and began to ask her, and I asked her the question that we often use to find out where people are in their faith. I said, have you come to the place where you know for certain that if you were to die tonight, you would go to heaven? And she said, absolutely not. There's no way. I'm as lost as you can get. I'm not saved. I thought, well, maybe we have a candidate here. <laughs> and the next few moments, we began to share the gospel. I don't know if you've ever been involved in a situation like this, but Satan will do everything he can to keep that from happening. The kids began to cry. They had a little dog that was driving everybody crazy, running all over the place. Believe it or not, when I got to the most important part of the outline, the alarm on my van went off outside. Somebody just touched the alarm, the van and the alarm went off, and so we had to stop and get somebody to go out and shut that off. And I thought, boy, this is not going to happen. And then when we got to the place where it was time for us to zero in and tell this young lady what it meant to know Jesus Christ and how she could invite Christ into her heart and truly come to know Christ, 
all of a sudden, this young teenage boy took those two kids. We didn't ask him out in the kitchen, and everything got quiet. And uh, the next thing I knew, we were sitting around in a circle holding hands and helping this young lady come to know what it means to know Jesus Christ. And almost all of us were in tears, and we got up and hugged each other. I'll never forget what she said. She said, oh, thank God. At last I can truly say I'm saved. And I thought to myself, those of us who have been in the faith for all these years, we've forgotten what a tremendous truth is wrapped up in that phrase. I am a Christian. I am saved. If you want to recover the first love for Jesus Christ, do what the Apostle Paul often did in his writings. Get back to Jesus. Get back to the cross. Get back to to your salvation. Keep going back there often. And as often as you go back there, you will find new nuances of what it means to truly be a Christian, and it will begin to warm the coldness in your heart. Secondly, not only remember, but repent. It says, except thou remember and repent. Now, what the word repent means is, to turn around and go in the other direction. Repentance is not only important for those who are coming to Christ, but repentance is a good doctrine for Christians to practice on occasion when they see that their lives have gotten out of sync. To repent simply means to stop dead in your tracks, confess your sin, and turn around and go the other direction. It is turning from sin to God. And you know what I find in talking to Christians, especially to collegians, especially to young people, many of them know they're in a malaise in their Christian life that they're floating, that they're not where they ought to be, that they're not living for God as they ought to live for God, but they don't really understand that they don't have to go on like that, that you can stop at any moment in time in your life and say, hey, I have had it with this, and I'm not going to live like this anymore, and I'm going to get back to where I once was and begin to live for Jesus Christ as I once did, and they stop dead in their tracks and go the other direction. I'm going to tell you, that happened to me when I was a senior in high school. I grew up in a Christian home. I knew I was a Christian. There was no question about it, but I got away from the Lord. Got so enamored with my athletic career and was running with all the guys that were involved in the athletic program, and all I cared was being accepted by them. And little by little, I began to fall into bad habit patterns and bad language and bad stories. And, you know, I grew up in a pastor's home, so I had to learn very quickly how to live the double life. And I was one way at school and one way at home, and I was so miserable. I'll tell you, a Christian out of fellowship with God is the most miserable creature on the face of God's earth. One night, we were playing a basketball game in our home gymnasium, and I, I grew up in Cedarville, Ohio, because my father was the president of Cedarville College, and, and uh, we played in the same gym, and, and our high school games were attended by all the collegians. I'll never forget this. It was a turning point in my life. I got out in front of a fast break in the beginning of the game, and there was water on the floor because it was snowing outside, and they tracked some snow inside, and I hit a wet spot, and I fell, and I slid, and I slid into the crowd that was gathered in the corner, and without thinking about it, I swore. And I looked up and there were ten pairs of Cedarville College students' eyes looking down at me. Here I was, the president's son, supposedly walking with God. And that was a moment of great awakening. (laughs) I remember how lousy I was the rest of the game. I couldn't have hit water falling out of a boat that night. And when the game was over, I didn't even shower. I just grabbed my stuff, and I went home, and I rushed right in the house. I didn't even say anything to my parents, and I went back in my room, and I shut the door. I got on my knees, and I said, God, I am so sick of the way I am. I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to go on with this coldness in my heart. God, forgive me for the way I've been living and how I've dishonored your name. Thank you for saving me, and help me now to begin to live a life that honors you. And that's the night I repented. You know what happened? Everything changed from that moment on wasn't easy. 
I had to go back to the kids I'd been running with and tell them I wasn't going to live like that anymore. I didn't care what they said. I'll tell you what, there wasn't any coldness in my heart anymore. There was that fresh new love that I had known. Then there's one last thing, and this is great. This is the most wonderful thing in the whole text, I believe. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. If you want three R's, here they are. Remember, repent, and repeat. <laughs> what does it mean to do the first works? Well, I don't have to explain that to you. You guys all know that. What, what are the first works? The first works were what I got involved in last night. Going out and sharing your faith. There's some things you do as a Christian when you're really on fire for God that keep you on fire for God. And if you're not doing those things now, one of the best ways to get back to where you were is to start doing those things. Well, you say, Pastor, I don't feel like doing it. Well, do it anyway. You know, I have kids all the time come and say, you know, you say that if you, if you don't read the Word of God, you lose your appetite for the Word of God. And that's true. And the more you don't read it, the less you want to read it. So they ask me, well, how do I break that cycle? And I've got this wonderful technique. You know what it's called? It's called force-feeding. It means get your feet on the floor and the text in front of you and begin to read God's Word out of discipline and obedience until the warmth of God's love begins to fill your heart again. And if you'll do that, if you'll do the first works, you will discover that God begins to bring back to your heart the wonderful sense of love and warmth that you miss. Let me tell you something that's true. Emotion does not create activity. Activity creates emotion. If you wait until you feel like doing right you will never do right. But if you do right, the feelings will usually follow. So listen to this. Remember from whence you've fallen, repent along the way, and then repeat the first works. You know what will happen? It's almost like getting saved all over again. It's coming back to the place where you have that joy and warmth that you miss. You say, Pastor Jeremiah, are you sure... This message is the right message for us. I'm absolutely certain. You know why? Because Christian colleges are the best place in the world to let your love grow cold. Because you have all of the outward accoutrements of success. You have all the outward aspects. You don't have to try to live the Christian life. Around here, they make you live the Christian life. You have to show up. You have to do the things that are outwardly expected of you. And so in the process of functioning that way, if you're not careful, you can go dead inside. And I just want to encourage you not to let that happen. I hope that God will use His Word today to just encourage and convict you. And if you can remember the three R's, you can get back on the road to strong love for Jesus Christ and make a difference with your life. Don't let your candle go out. Let's pray.